Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Welcome everyone to Deep Drinks Podcast, the deepest podcast on the internet. The typical perspective of religion focuses on the beliefs and meanings derived from the revealed scriptures, ideas, and doctrines. But is it the best way to look at religion as a whole? My guest today is Professor David Morgan, who led the way in radically broadening that framework to encompass the understanding that religions are fundamentally embodied in the material world. Material religion includes the things that people wear, eat, sing, touch, look at, create, and avoid. It also encompasses the places where religion and the societal realities of everyday life, including gender, class, and race, intersect in physical ways. Guys, I'm very excited about my guest today, who is Professor David Morgan, who's the Professor of Religious Studies with a secondary appointment in the Department of Art, Art History and Visual Studies at Duke University. He chaired the Department of Religious Studies from 2013 to 2019. David received his PhD at the University of Chicago in 1990. He's currently Director of Graduate Studies in Duke's PhD program in religion. He has published several books and dozens of essays on the history of religion, visual, uh, visual history, history of religious, visual culture, oh my gosh, fine art and art theory. His book, The Thing About Religion, is a absolute must read for anyone interested in the study of religion. And I really mean that. Um, if you saw my book shelf tour, he was a book that I recommended. This book was the book I re- recommended. Today, we'll be discussing religion as a material process the complex relationship between the cognitive and material, that is, the human behaviours that comprise a religion. Welcome, Professor David Morgan, to Deep Drinks Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Well, it's fantastic to be here. And you, you you know, I have to say, you chose a fantastic drink. You're drinking <laughs> whiskey sours, right? Yeah. And it's I'll lovely. Never... I love the premise of your... Uh, <laughs> great. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, I've never had this before, and it's delicious. I, I must. I'm just. I'm a huge fan already. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. Uh, this is going to be an amazing episode. So, I, I actually wanted to start this conversation uh, with a bit of a preface about how I found your book. So, I was in Byron Bay with my family, uh, Byron Bay in Australia, and I went past this little bookstore. And we're in the bookstore, and I was looking at all these like philosophical books, and they have a lot of arty books there. And your book caught my attention because for some reason, and it's not this expensive online, so don't, don't everyone freak out. Everyone should go buy it. But it was like $75 Australian for this book. And it's quite a thin book. Um, let me tell you, it's dense though. And I was like, why is this book so expensive? And um, and I started reading the back of it and I was like, this, this looks like a book that might be right for me. And then I looked up some online reviews and I was like, this book really looks like it's going to be right for me. And then I bought the book and I would have paid double, triple the amount. It is it was paramount to me for uh, to to my um, to understanding religion better for myself. It really shifted the, sh- the how I perceive religion, not in a negative way, but in a um, in a way that made it more uh, more real, more tangible, more um, more human. And and I, and I really appreciated that. So, and and I, I I think it's I think it's an absolute shame that not everyone has read this book that is interested in the study of religion. So let's let's talk about your book mm-hmm. and let's talk about material the material um study of religion because to a lot of people that might be an oxymoron uh, yeah it's true it's true so i guess the first question is um what is your book about 
Well, it's about, <clears throat> it's very much motivated by what you were just saying, the, the fact that this sort of default, not terribly thoughtful definition of religion is that it's a system of beliefs. It's an intellectual thing. It happens between your ears. It's the realm of just private opinion and... Um, or even uh, in your heart. It happens yeah. in your heart. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And, 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 and it's... Uh, I mean, I think if it's in your heart, is it even a little bit better than if it's just in your head? You know? <laughs> uh, and and uh, that it's essentially a kind of discursive linguistic phenomenon. And that if you want to understand religion, you just have to read the, the scriptures or read what people say they believe. And then you've got it. And I think this misses lived religion entirely. It, it, it misses mm -hmm. uh, what people do with their bodies, how they dress, how they eat when they eat, where they worship, the, the way they pray, I mean, physically, gesturally, how they do things. Um, it misses all of that. And, uh, you know, that, that is what I think the material study of religion wants to recover for the academic study of religion. Not, it's, it's not a, a form of doing religion. I'm, I'm interested in the academic study of it and, and really uh, understanding what it is people do to keep their lives in working order you know, materially. Mm. So that's what it's about. And that's also, in some sense, what it's, it's motivated by, because, uh, I mean, if you teach in a university system, pretty much anywhere in the world, you, you get a lot of students who are coming with a, a deep default definition of religion, what they were told by mom and dad, basically. And um, the, the real pedagogical task is to engage that rather than treat it sort of like hands off. Well, I can't talk about that because that's personal. And the best way I find to do that is to talk about what they do. You know, tell mm -hmm. me about what you do as a religious person. And then you can talk about space and time and practice and social relationships and the things they adore, the things they hate, the things they're afraid of. Uh, you know, it just starts unfolding and you get this much richer sense of, uh, religion as a lived reality mm. it's uh it and it it feels like um when you when you kind of couple uh religion or someone's beliefs with materiality like a lot of religious a lot of people who are religious would take issue with the the concept that there is materiality in fact i i grew up in a um, pentecostal uh, like an evangelical style kind of church in Australia, we didn't like the Catholics very much because the Catholics did a lot of the what we called material things. They did, um, uh, you know, they had uh, relics and, and, th and, and things like that. And we we considered that no, God lived inside of us, and 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 that was. And we would I would have I would have I would have very much said no. There is no materiality in our um, in our religion. Yeah. Um, but something about your something in your book kind of pointed out that's not really the case. Uh, you mentioned oh, was true. it was it? I'm not sure if it was an interview or 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 a, a, somewhere in your book. I was trying to find it last night. I couldn't find it. But you mentioned somewhere about people drawing like uh, images of Noah's Ark. Uh, uh, is that right? Drawing um, images uh, like little kids drawing the images of Noah's Ark and putting them on the wall, or is that am I am I forgetting? Am I getting? I don't remember that. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, this is a. But the practice you're referring to is is uh, absolutely common. And what what's happening when kids make drawings is there's a lot of important work getting done psychologically, 
as they mm. talk, you know, and it's wonderful to talk to kids as they do this. And you see that this, this, these, for instance, the image making practices you're talking about are richly engaged in imagination and thinking about safety, thinking about, uh, you know, uh, protection and the order of the universe. And uh, it's their, often their way of thinking about nature. Uh, also thinking about the nasty things that gods do, you know, they're not always mm. nice. And uh, so these image-making practices, among many, many others, are, are critical, not, to, not just to children, but to lots of folks as they negotiate the, the, the insanity of life, the unfairness of life, the randomness of life. You, know, you mm -hmm. need ways of stabilizing it, and, and I think that's what things help people do. So could you define what you mean by things and materiality? Can you define that for us um, yeah. in a way that I guess people would like understand who maybe pretend you are talking to uh, old me who was in that church who thought, no, that we don't have material religion. Um, we yeah. have a relationship with Jesus. Um, what would you say? How would you just describe it? Well, I mean, first of all, if if that I've been in that that situation, and oh, yeah, you, uh, you, I, I've you asked, some war stories. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've asked people, you know, just to talk about their relationship to Jesus, and 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 the more they talk, the more embodied it gets, the more deeply felt it gets. Their language becomes very emotional, and sometimes their language stops because they're in they're in touch with feelings they can't fully articulate, and mm. so that's that's an embodied moment. That's when you have to feel it. As you say, the heart has to take over. And, uh, you know, those are moments of deep emotional and embodied experience. So that's a, that's a place to start with people. But then if you talk more with people, they'll, they'll talk about uh, the things they do. Uh, I, ask, I love to ask people, how do you pray? And, then the, and, the, and, and immediately the head will go down, the eyes will close, hands will come mm. together. Uh, sometimes they'll talk about finding a place to kneel or at bedside, wherever, and then they can talk about place. Why is it important to pray at this place? Sometimes the place can be; it doesn't have to be, but it can be. It can be important. Or time. You know, there's a certain time when prayer is more compelling, or or is uh, is is more present to one's mind. And it, as you talk with folks, you realize they realize, uh, and you learn how deeply embodied their religions are. There is a mm. discourse in place that tells them, tr uh, talking about Protestants in particular, but not just Protestants, that true religion is about words, it's about ideas, it's about scripture. Um, but, you know, they, they say that, but it's a kind of cognitive dissonance. They're saying one thing, but if you look at what they do, uh, mm. y y that has to be factored in into the conversation. And, and then they see things and start to realize, you know, uh, this is very important. I, I love it when I have Protestant kids in the classroom and they, we talk, for instance, about uh, things. You, you, you're asking me about things and I'll circle back mm -hmm. to that. Uh, and, and we talk about, uh, I like to talk to them about icons, these, these special objects that are somehow transparent to mm -hmm. divine power or whatever. And they say, oh yeah, but I, I don't have icons. I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm Protestant. We just don't do that. And uh, and I said, "Oh, but you have icons." And they said, "No, I have no icons. None. I'm 
It's not part of my. So I give them this great thought experiment. I said, imagine that you and your friends are going to go for a camp out and you were tasked with bringing toilet paper. And you get out there and uh, at the campsite and one of your friends has to use the toilet paper, asks you where it was, and you realize, oh, I forgot. But you do happen to have your little Gideon's Bible full of very tissuey paper. I asked them, would you give him your Gideon's Bible to wipe your back, his backside with? And they say, absolutely not. I say, why not? Because that is God's word. And I said, there's your icon. There's your <laughs> icon. That's your special thing that cannot be violated or profaned. Uh, I said, it's just pages and ink, but you've turned it into something more. And yeah. that's fascinating. That's a religious move. And that's how deeply material your religion is, even though you don't want to admit it. <laughs> Uh, it, it's, wow, it, it's fascinating. That's actually that's a great that's a great thought experiment. Um, we we had uh, th there was this uh, Aaron Ra, who's a I'm not sure if you know him. He was um he's a famous uh, he was the head of the the, the atheist community of Austin. Well, no, the, uh, atheist. I oh, know big atheist dude. Mm -hmm. Looks like a Viking, tall, like long hair. And uh, he 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 really goes up against the creationists, and he he has conversations around creationism because he's very science focused and, and tries to teach evolution and one of the things that he brought up that i thought was super interesting was that a lot of the people where he grew up i think in i think it might be in texas he says that a lot of people put doctrine above deity so mm, they, they'll right. put they'll put their doctrine above the so he'll say like we have fossils in the ground that that lay out a clear record of like how life developed and if that you know if you believe in God, great. He's like, if you think that God put that, 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 that was all there, then great. That, that's what God did. But you're saying that your doctrine says, no, that God didn't do that. Or you're saying that you're putting doctrine above deity. Mm -hmm. So all the evidence we have to throw out because of your, the doctrine, not because of, um, not because of the actual evidence. And I just thought it was super interesting to, to, to look at that because a lot of people, yeah, they, they, they put doctrine above deity. I've, mm -hmm. I know for my own life, I would, um, I would always, you know, I'd have certain feelings or emotions to do with my religion and you'd always check them with your scripture because you, you put your scripture first, but I would never say that I'm putting doctrine above deity or well, doctrine above my own. Uh, you know, I would, I would always, I would always view it as like a, a good thing, a holy thing. And something you said interesting about like the people praying, you know, they, they bow their head and they, they, you know, they hold their hands and they, they close their eyes. Um, I, I noticed that even, uh, interestingly at 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 my church uh, you know when i was going to church is um we had this there's this movement that i, I don't know how much how much do you know about pentecostalism um, do you go to, <laughs> go to a pentecostal church regularly or anything do you know much about oh yeah i know you know, a bit, but I, I oh yeah so they'll do you know they'll do the, the praise and worship it may maybe started with uh hillsong where it's the it's the raising of the arms it's the it's the it's the, it's the holding your arm out raising it to god you know as a, i'm desperate for you that's the the, the i need you I'm, I'm like a baby holding up my arms but what's interesting is that became so mainstream in the pentecostal movement that i started seeing things changing so there was a movement that kind of came through our church which i called the bethelers uh, and those people who are obsessed with bethel church which is a church over in the states who you know have jesus culture and stuff and what they would sort of do is on stage instead of facing the crowd and raising their hands as, as a way of, of worship they would turn to the side so they would turn like this and they would or they would turn their full backs to the audience 
and it was almost like and it could be and it, it might be um it might be a way of uh, it, it probably is legitimate i'm not i'm not um in in regards to like an, an actual expression of their, their themselves but it was it became it, it it became a meme in of itself in that it in that people started to mimic it as if as as like a it's almost like a virtue signal like i'm having my special moment with god mm -hmm. i don't care about the crowd i'm here worshiping god and that became its own form of um of ritual, I guess, uh, yeah. and, and it's interesting how like these these ideas develop. You first got the, the praying quietly in the room, as God says, then you got the raising up your your arms, and then that became too mainstream, so it moved again, and it's just constantly this evolving. I haven't been in church in many years, but I'm sure there's a new style of uh, of worship that's kind of on the fringes of of how people uh, perform their mm -hmm. uh, their belief. Yeah. It's, it, and I never thought of that as as material, but you're saying, yeah, that's 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 that is the material aspect of religion. Oh yeah, definitely, and and uh, you you find in a lot a lot a lot of Protestant traditions don't use imagery in the liturgical setting or in the near the altar or pulpit, but they do engage in a kind of uh, uh, architecture of bodies, of holding hands, and the praise style worship that you mentioned, and you know. Uh, touching and moving the laying on of hands yeah laying on uh, of hands and yeah the variety of bodily practices that uh you know are are critical to constructing and maintaining their sense of community and um a very embodied sense of worship you know worship is not mm -hmm. some abstraction for them it's very much a part of participating in what i would call the social body you know they you, you have to know how to do it yeah, you, mm -hmm. you, you, you know, I, I remember going to a Pentecostal service in uh, in uh, Kenya once, <clears throat> and man, but I felt like, of course, I was this dumb white, you know, American guy, <laughs> but I really felt out of place because I didn't know, you know, you say the body English. I didn't know how yeah. to move and be part of this as a somatic embodied. Uh, practice and uh, it, it just really made it clear to me how important uh, embodied experience is uh, in uh, in these collective, it's, you know, Durkheimian sense of generating this excitement, this collective effervescent that pulls the people together and gives them a sense of corporate, uh, you know, togetherness, uh, presence. Yeah. There. You um in your book you I was because guys look how much notes I, yeah. I put in this this uh, I just gonna oh, it's gonna focus come on focus but you can see I've got little yeah I've got little uh, notes all through it so uh and 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 one of, so I went through it and I'm glad I put the notes in because I went through it and I just there's so many great stories in there and one of the the stories that you kind of open the book with is about this Tahitian uh, Protestant missionary, uh, Papaya? Is that Papaya? Yeah. Is that how you say it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's, let's go with that. So, um, so could you explain the story of uh, Papaya and uh, and how it relates to, like how it relates to the, like how it opens them about the material study of religion? Well, I was really interested in, in uh, this is, uh, uh, th you're referring to the one in, uh, the uh, uh, the Cook the Cook Islands Rarotonga right Rarotonga right. yeah I'm trying to remember where that is uh, it's uh, page thirty six okay you can even read a little part of it if you want 
because it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating um it's fascinating uh uh i guess um visualize it's like a, it's a good visualization of like yeah. how of what we're talking about yeah yeah it's this it's a story about uh, the written by a, a a british missionary uh and his his memoirs about being there and uh, uh about this uh sort of encounter when when the uh polynesian meets the who who did not read uh and meets the uh European missionaries and one of them wants to communicate with the other who's distant, writes something on wood, a wood chip, I think, and uh, gives it to him, say, take it to him and he'll know exactly what I want or what, yeah, I think it was to his wife. And for him, this is just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's magic because, uh, you know, this action at a distance and the markings on the wood chip really meant nothing other than they were part of the magic. Mm. And, uh, I think from, you know, he told this story as a missionary in a very condescending way to, uh, you know, indicate that the, these poor people really, really need us. Uh, they can't understand writing and uh, uh, for them it's, you know, it's magic. But I was thinking at the same time, there are so many examples in on the Western side of magic boards. And I was thinking of the fascination people have with like Ouija boards, for instance, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, that uh, a lot are, are a spiritual form of communication for people. Uh, mm. It's a parlor game for a lots, but uh, you know, well, I, I was, I was just thinking too, we could, uh, I, I said this on Facebook and I got a lot of people telling me that it was wrong and evil and stuff, but I said, couldn't we, if Ouija boards are real, couldn't we solve the energy crisis? We could build a huge one uh, and we could, we could, we could connect it to, you know, something that, move, that changes kinetic energy into electricity. And then we could just ask it questions all day. And then we got like infinite energy. And I had a lot of people reaching out to me and saying, no, they're real and don't want to mess with them. And, um, yeah. and I had yeah. this, and I'm yeah. like, oh, well, I was just joking. I don't, I don't <laughs> offend anyone. Um, yeah, no, that's fascinating, though. I, I, I think they're interesting objects because of uh, they do capture a sense of the, you know, the, uh, the, the way that uh, any kind of spiritual experience is mediated by stuff, by things. Uh, you know, it's in, things aren't just... Uh, by material objects are not just uh they're not indifferent they actually construct the experience they enter into it and they they change what happens to people mm. uh, they're part of the process uh so understanding mm. that and this allows me to get back to your important question about thing what is a thing and what's the thing about religion i mean i i mean that in, in, in several different senses first of all i think the material stuff of religion uh, and, mm. and how people, uh, I mean, the argument here is ultimately that human beings are, we're sort of, uh, you know, the old expression, the homo faber, we're the, we're the being that builds tools and uses tools. That's what our, our nature is, you might say. And uh, what that implies, of course, is that in some sense, we're incomplete without tools. Mm. We have to have stuff. We mm. have to have clothing. We have to have tools to build and, you know, these tools transform our bodies. Uh, the hammer I have allows me to do things that I cannot do with my bare hands. And the hammer becomes part of me in, uh, in the sense that, of, of what I'm building. 
and it enables me and changes me in a sense. It, I adapt to the world through the tools I have. So we're in constant mm -hmm. interface with the world because we're not finished. We're not complete things. We need stuff to complete ourselves in, in any task. Uh, so that's, first of all, the, the, you know, things are essential to the human experience. We, we are yeah. dependent on them in the most fundamental way. And secondly, the way our brains work, we, uh, things come at us that we can't identify. And our first preference is, is to specify them, to, in effect, to turn things which are kind of mysterious into objects that we know, that we can classify. We have taxonomies. This, this is that, that is this, it belongs here. And that gives us a sense of control. Of course, these taxonomies are arbitrary often and they fall apart and, and things themselves don't always fit in the categories mm. we place them. And that's the thing that interests me the most. Uh, there's a lot of religious experience that people report in which they seem enshrouded, whatever they see or feel or hear is enshrouded in mystery. And it, and it refuses to resolve itself into a symbol or a, an identifiable finite object that we can have control over. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about visions and elocution mm. and uh, dreams and uh, 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 things that are really important and have been important for human religions for the past probably 75,000 or yeah. 100,000 years. <laughs> Um, or 6,000, depending on your perspective. Yeah, longer than that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, indeed, that's even even if you take that view, uh, dreams, for instance, are the Bible's full of, of dreams and in their interpretation. So mm. that's the interesting thing about those things is they resist resolution. Dreams are, even if you think you've got it interpreted right, it pushes back and doesn't fit. And then you're second guessing and and visions that people see and that who is this? What does this mean? What am I supposed to do about this? Who is this? Uh, I mean, that was what Moses is, said when he saw this weird burning bush and it spoke and he said, well, who are you? And then this, this deity says, well, I'm the one that is. <laughs> yeah. Herbs, in effect, to preserve the mystery and not fit into some uh, human uh, conception of things. So it's fascinating, uh, this thingness, this mysterious otherness about mm. reality. And if we start thinking even totally outside of a religious context, um, you know, our, uh, our neurology is designed to, uh, to, to try to specify what's happening around us, to control it. Uh, but it doesn't work often. And then... Mm. We, we need stories, we need symbols, we need allegories to try to tackle the strangeness of life. And uh, mm. I think that's part, uh, a really interesting part of the creativity of religions, uh, because mm. they're always trying, they want, of course, to control everything, particularly when they, it's religion that gets in the hands of the state. Then, mm. then control is really the premium. Yeah. But uh, if you look at the dreamers and the visionaries and the prophets and the mystics and, you know, those interesting characters sort of on the edge, they're expanding the conversation by uh, uh, by dealing with ambivalence, you know, diving mm -hmm. into it and, and uh, experimenting with it. 
I, I remember because uh, because the type of Christianity I was a part of had a lot of like visions and and prophecies and healings and and all that kind of stuff. That was like the bread and butter of what we did. And um, I remember hearing a testimony from a Mormon who says that they're really struggling with their faith, but they can't deny it because they had a vision and it was as clear as day. And then they went to the throne room of God and they saw God, Jesus and Joseph Smith sitting next to Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking if this person had a vision like this, like, like, and they're, 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 they're very convinced that this happened. And I was like, but I don't accept that, that Joseph Smith would be chilling next to Jesus. There, I'm not a Mormon uh, or a, a member of the LDS church. So, so yeah, I I I, uh, I was um a bit taken aback by that, and then I learned this really interesting thing about aliens. So um and and I promise this isn't an alien podcast. You're not going to start here. <laughs> I'm not going to start. Spinning. But what what was really interesting is we've had we have accounts of people being abducted, right? Um for or, and I'm not going to even deny they've had this experience. People have these experiences for ages, but then. And they were, all the accounts were wide ranging and different, like what the aliens or things looked like, how they acted, everything. And then Close Encounters of a Third Kind came out, or, or maybe it was, or whatever the the first movie to have the great, the typical gray aliens with the big black eyes and the gray skin. And then after that, every single alien claim, alien abduction story ha described the aliens exactly like that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what, what, what's the coincidence that, well, it'd be a wild coincidence that if we were being visited by some sort of alien and they were abducting people, that every other race of aliens <laughs> went away and only the gray ones came was, you know, to yeah. me, it points to the psychological phenomenon of like how we try and piece together these uh, subjective experiences that we have with imagery, allegory, allegory symbol um right. perspective and and you have this oh sorry go ahead. well I, I i think you're right there i think we this is why we can't just we can't solve these problems just through psychology we have to look at the the visual cultures that people live in and the narrative cultures the the mythologies that shape their everyday life that they hear again and again and again i mean it's just no it's not a surprise to me when people describe Jesus that they saw in either a dream or in a vision, and he looks just like 9,000 <laughs> paintings of him because they are immersed <laughs> in that. And I don't, this isn't a way of making fun of religious. It's, I oh, think of that's the way not. the human brain works. You know, mm. we, we, we constantly are recycling and relying on archives of images uh, mm. and other kinds of experiences, smells and sounds, et cetera. You know, that we, we gather up and we use as tools to make sense of, uh, of our experience. And um, mm. dreams are uh, not, in my opinion, just a sort of happenstance, a neurological happenstance. I think they're a really fascinating experience, a, cogn a form of uh, a cognitive resource that our brains use to recycle, replenish, interpret uh, things we've seen and things that have experienced um, and, uh, you know, dreams have always been a powerful engine in, in most religions, besides, precisely mm. because they, they come with a certain force, you know, and they're a part of, they're a kind of a, kind of a faculty, I think, whether they're meant to be that biologically, that's how they're appropriated and used, I think, in religious systems. Mm. You have this quote in the book that I just, love. this, so normally I write, I write some notes for the interviews that I do. Yours has gone to 
to two pages, which is not not common. And I and I've no three pages, sorry, and I've condensed it because you've got so many quotes that I've, I've written down that are just fantastic if they pop up. But um, you wrote some things or situations enchant us, others coerce us, subtle or grossly. A parent, uh, a parent's reproving tone, a teacher's threat, a passerby's frown, a bully's punch, a police officer's stern look, a, a turnstile's stiff uh, revolution, uh, locked door. Uh, traffic barrier, an empty stare of a room full of bored students. All of these things compel uh, or forbid us to behaving in a particular way. Hmm. They work on our bodies in unspoken material ways. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. And I mean, I, I was going to give another example about church, but I feel like we'll just keep talking about my old church experiences. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it really is. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's fascinating the way to look at religion like that, to look at like, not just, sorry, not just religion, but everything like that. Like there are the symbolism, there's imagery, there's, uh, there's the way that we interact physically, like how our brain chemistry works when someone gives us a hug, you know, mm-hmm. versus someone pushing us away. Like there's, there's stuff that's going on there. And I feel like, um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but I feel like that's, I guess the essence of these the uh, how we build society culture and religion it's like we 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 build these stories these uh these memes these concepts these ideas and like we we structure society around these uh, interactions that we have with the world and with people and like that's mm-hmm. how it's, it's like to me this to me it explains so much like it's sort of everything made much more sense to me in in life when i read this I like your use of the word uh, uh, the word meme. Um, you know, memes <laughs> memes rely on massive circulation. There there are forms yeah. of iteration or repetition, and the, well, the power of a meme is that it gets circulated and repeated so much that we changes take it for granted. We take it for second nature. You know. Well, the word meme actually comes from the uh, Richard Dawkins book, the 1974 mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins book, uh, The Selfish Gene. And he, he, I think I haven't read it. I've got it there. It's on my shelf ready to read, but I just haven't had the time. But um, but it's it, it talks about, you know, it's the concept of a, of a meme is like, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you probably have read it and you probably know, but it's like it it, it adapts and evolves like a gene. So you, you have like memes. And now we think of memes as like internet images that have changed. Well, that's one form of meme, but it's... Uh... yeah. Yeah. But yeah. no, I think that, like, yeah, it's this, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, of course, I mean, I'm trained as an art historian originally, so I'm really interested <laughs> in the visual dimension. So I always default to, to visual memes, for instance, but you, you think about so much of what we see in uh, religious imagery or any kind of imagery, it comes to us uh, often in very formulaic fashion. Uh, mm. you know, it comes to us in this repeated structure that, that, uh, is familiar and therefore taken for granted or accepted or, or, or normalized. It represents something that becomes not only normal, but normative, you know. Mm. And, uh, you know, so much in what we do is this kind of mimetic, repetitive behavior. Uh, because, uh, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're creatures driven by a kind of uh, a homeostatic drive. You know, we want mm. things to be stable, to be manageable because, you know, we're we're very, very finite creatures. We, we, we have to eat several times a day. We have to drink. We have to do a lot of repetitive things to stay healthy. Uh, and uh, consistency is a way of, uh, you know, feeling safe and, and uh, avoiding, you know, extremes. 
Um, so for a lot of our information, we turn to these kinds of deeply familiar patterns of information. Mm. It's the repetition of the thing. And, and memes are just a great, they, they do indeed evolve. They're not static, but they evolve in such a way that they get imbricated on uh, new memes are typically structured on material that's already familiar, you know, so it changes, yeah. but it also stays the same. Uh, and uh, this, this is actually a great, uh, great way to introduce one of the parts I wanted to talk about, which is mm -hmm. Plato's cave. So you, you bring up this amazing artwork in, uh, in your book, uh, and I'll just show it on the screen now, where it's a, it's an image, was this made in uh, the 1600s, Dutch. was it? Dutch yeah, Dutch? I think it's uh, uh, 16th, I can't remember, 50s, uh, where it's in here somewhere. Uh, I don't even know where it's at now. <laughs> well, just, that's in the uh, uh, chapter, uh, yeah, right there. 1604, yeah. So, uh, so the idea, maybe you could explain the idea of Plato's cave and then explain how this image here has kind of added to that allegory a little bit. Yeah, it's a fascinating image. It's Well, of course, it, it comes from Plato's Republic where he's, uh, he's floating different concepts of mimesis and... and uh, uh, theories of knowledge. And uh, this is perhaps the, the most well-remembered uh, myth or allegory that he, he shares, this idea that uh, hum most of humanity spends his time in the depths, the gloomy depths of a cave, looking at shadows of sort of images on the wall. And their sense of what's real never moves beyond that. Uh, but he's saying the philosopher is the one who will not be satisfied with these shadows, uh, but turn uh, and try to retrace um, the sort of reverse the descent to ignorance toward toward knowledge. And when he does, he or she will see that uh, those those shapes are are not real either. They're just the projection that they're the object that's whose uh, contours are being projected. And then eventually he will turn uh, and find his way out of the cave and look at the sun as the true source of light and uh, realize uh, pretty much by himself, because most people stay in the cave, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, what's real. Uh, so it's a, it's a very elitist model of enlightenment. And of course, Plato is an unrepentant elitist, and he's very much <laughs> describing the elite and how they're supposed to be trained and privileged um, in society. Because for him, uh, the secret to justice, and that's the driving question of the book, of the book is uh, keeping things the same. So mm -hmm. if everybody knows their place in this three-tiered city that he's describing, things will be nice. Uh, so it, it's a very problematic myth because it suggests that everybody down at the bottom of the cave is probably designed to stay there. Otherwise, they're going <laughs> to the, only the elite philosophers get to leave and get to see truth. So his story has all kinds of problems from a modern perspective. But I yeah. found this a really interesting uh, print because it's by a Protestant thinking about this story and basically baptizing it in a sort of Christian critique of Catholicism. Because if you look closely at those figures, uh, those sculptures on top of the wall there that uh, are the are being silhouetted against the wall that we can't see, but all these people on the right side are looking at, 
those a, a number of them are uh, probably Christian saints in the Catholic tradition. So it's his it's his critique of Catholicism as uh, projecting illusion, the worship of images. Uh, and he's laying that over the Greek uh, Platonic model of the quest for true knowledge. So it's a it's a fascinating piece of uh, sort of the alignment of Calvinism and Platonism uh, as a piece of visual <laughs> propaganda. So this would be this would be the meme evolving to add you know Catholic saints and uh, Christian symbolism. Um, mm -hmm. this the, be... reason, the reason I use it is is I think it's very much part of a of a dualist mentality that's been in place for a very long time in the West that separates spirit and matter uh, as uh, matter is not real. Bodies aren't real. They're changeable. They're, mm -hmm. uh, as Plato, or as uh, Socrates says in one of the dialogues, they're perishable rubbish. What's real is the divine idea, that the logos that's in the mind, in the soul, because that's uh, the human part that is like the divine. And mm -hmm. I think if you take that attitude toward religions, you end up dematerializing them and disembodying them and arguing that what's really real is spirit and matter is just uh, irrelevant or or worse. And uh, I just don't, I, I understand that that's what happens at certain levels of theological discourse and philosophical discourse. But if you look at the way people live their religions, it's quite different. Hmm. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a fascinating piece. I I I, I really I really enjoy it. Um, I, th I think you've I think you've you've uh, you've you've, um, in, uh, you've you've started me on a path of really appreciating artwork as well. That's some um, something that uh, that you've also done. Um, so uh, so um, uh, I'm just trying to look at like what uh, the the next uh, thing that I had uh, written down was. Um, so you mentioned, uh, oh yeah, so, sorry, sorry. So you mentioned that there are seven forms of material practice. Uh, could you go over them, uh, with us? Several forms of material practice? Yeah. Is that, I didn't hear it. Okay. Yeah. Well, gosh, there's probably innumerable, uh, <laughs> material practices, but I, I like the idea of material practice because I, I've actually wanted to argue that belief should be wrested from the hands of the Christian Gnostics who want to argue that true belief is 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 this internal volition and uh, a doctrinally grounded recitation or catechetical recitation of belief of dogmas, and say yeah. that actually, if you look at lived religion, if you look at the way people actually behave. Belief is something much more interesting than that. It's something that they learned with their bodies, if, if, if we're talking about children, for instance. And even if they're converts, adult converts, one of the things you have to learn is the body language, the, the mm. bodily discourse of material practice. How, what do you do mm. with your body? I mean, you, it's like me in that Pentecostal church in Africa. I just did not know what to do with my body. Therefore, I couldn't participate. I could not, I wasn't. Of their faith anyway, but I mean, I, I couldn't, uh, you know, have tried to seek some interesting points of sympathy and connection. Mm -hmm. uh, so teaching 
the techniques of the body uh, is one of the most critical cultural learnings that happens in a human life. Uh, and I think most people learn their religion as body practice. Uh, parents teach their children how to pray, not by giving them an intellectual lecture on the history of prayer, but by holding them, putting their hands together, uh, kissing them, and, you know, maybe the words they say are just really pablum, but that's okay, because that's not what prayer is for that child. Prayer mm. is a bodily attitude. It's a, it's a sharing. It's an intimate connection to the adult and to the broader body of believers. And, uh, and that's why adults kind of practice, when you talk to them about prayer, they actually seem to regress often. To, to, well, this is, you know, they're going back in time. In effect, they're praying with earlier versions of themselves. Uh, you know, that's the kind of organic reality of, of religious practice, I think. Could you, could you expand on that a little bit? What do you mean by they go back to, like, a version of themselves? What do you mean by that? Well, I think uh, uh, what's, uh, it, you know, it goes back to this point I was making earlier about religion as, um, as culture is a, is a, is a, not entirely, but is largely a homeostatic drive. It wants things, it, it places a great premium on stability, continuity. And um, I don't mean to character by, by regression. I don't, I'm not talking about a kind of an yeah, infantile yeah, yeah. regression. I'm not trying to infantilize religion. I'm saying that uh, I love Freud's, uh, he was quoting Wordsworth, actually. He said, the child is the father of the man. And Wordsworth said that when he returned to the River Dudden one day as an old, as a middle-aged man, and it was the place where he stood as a teenager, uh, and he remembered that, and he realized that kid who stood here is actually older than I am. He was alive then. I wasn't. So mm. this, you know, it's that, that Russian doll concept of the self. We're just, we're, you, you, a human self is a series of concentric shells that are integrate more or less integrated. Some people don't yeah. really make it to adulthood, but most of us do. We bear our own scars, but we are that child still. We remember that person. I, I, you know, we have dialogue. We dream about those people. We talk to that younger person in our dreams all the time. And I think prayer, table manners, uh, lots of human behaviors are simultaneously structuring the present, but also remembering the deep past. And get alive, and that's why uh, I think uh, the prayer experience for people is uh, is all is is a is a shared experience because they mm. learn to pray with their parents, they learn to pray in churches or mosques, uh, synagogues, whatever their uh, background, and uh, that resonates. It reverberates uh, through life, and that I think is is what belief is. Belief is a, a, is a disposition inherited from practice. Practice is primary. It shapes the body and the body resonates with that. And those mm. behaviors like prayer, people uh, dealing with horrible circumstances, you know, uh, will go to prayer. Why do they do that? Uh, they're not running from reality. They're making, they're using a deep resource mm. to deal with trauma, to deal with shock, to deal with intense pain or deep grievance, bereavement. Uh, I think it's uh, 
um, something that medical schools are understanding more and more now, that religion shouldn't be separated from the training of physicians, but seen as a resource, seen as something that needs to be considered, whatever the religion, they need to learn about it because it's part of the person they're healing. Mm. There's uh, we have a we have an interesting comment from someone who said, Exi uh, Music said, "I'm looking forward to seeing the brain damage cases from this new slap fighting thing. Have you seen that with people are slapping themselves across the face, slapping each other across the face? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's definitely one one thing uh, you mentioned there that I, that I found s super interesting is the that we we kind of are taught how to go about the world um, from our culture, our parents, and, and, all, and all that stuff." But we often don't think about people uh, like people that we kind of look up to doing this, especially religious leaders. So I was very blown away to find out that um, 300 years before Jesus existed, um, and I, I don't know, I don't know who quoted it, but it was a, it was a Greek philosopher said, um, the the love of money is the uh, mega mega city of all evils, is the mm. metropolis of all evils, and it's like. That's quite similar to the root of money is the love. Uh, the, the love of money is the root of all evil. You know, love of money is the mega city of all evil. And I was like, wow, that's three hundred years before Jesus. You know, mm -hmm. was he was that an original Jesus quote, or was that a you know? You think I don't that think it's like a much original Jesus quotes. I mean, he's uh, whoever wrote those things. Jesus probably said some of it, but uh, you know, it's it's scriptures are edited. They're you know they're pulling from all kinds of sources and. Uh, how dare you it's the perfect word of god <laughs> um but yes i, I academically yeah 100 percent. there's uh i had uh dr kip davis on uh who's a dead sea dead sea scrolls scholar and he pointed out to me um and i'll just shoot this little clip here and we can, you won't hear the audio but he works uh he, he's one of the people who who uh found the forgeries in the dead sea scrolls antiquity market and um that the the beatitudes and this is what I'm, uh, there's the Beatitudes were, we've got record of them before Jesus's time. Yeah. Now they're not a one for one copy, but they're eight, um, eight blessed statements followed by a ninth longer one. Now blessed mm -hmm. be, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit and, or, or and blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And then in Quran Beatitudes, uh, scroll Q, uh, 4Q525 says, blessed are he who speaks truth with a pure heart and who does not slander with his tongue. So even Jesus is, like it is rooted in the Jewish tradition of the time. It's good, Jew, it's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, that was amazing to me. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, this, uh, you know, this I, is this is absolutely, I think, part and particle of of, of religion. Religions uh, are largely uh, imbrications. I mean, they're, they're patterns built on older patterns. Because, as I keep saying, the function of religion is to stabilize, you know, to mm -hmm. to build, help people build worlds that they can live in and thrive in. And, you know, if you've got people out there constantly innovating at the cutting edge, pushing, pushing, pushing for novelties all the time, there's no continuity. There's, you know, you need a few people doing it. You need a few prophets. You need a few people ruffling feathers. But you need you need more continuity to give uh most because most people uh live uh lives that are as bacon said nasty brutish and short you know it, mm. uh, so uh continuity and stability are really uh important and and uh as radical in some respects as jesus was uh he was also extremely consistent with uh major aspects of the jewish tradition so mm. as i say you know he's a good he's a good jew and 
uh, I, I'm not uh, well versed to, to, to talk much more about him, but I, I mean, you know, you've you've had guests who are uh, <laughs> go into that I, far greater uh, authority than I can. So I I wanted to touch on um, imagery and the ideology behind imagery and um, and you know and, and and but before we do that, I want to quickly just tell everyone, guys, if you're interested in anything that we're talking about, you can go get a thing about religion and introduction to introduction to material study of religions, and I recommend it so much. It's such a fantastic book, and it's uh it's just just you have to go check it out it's it's buy amazing. the paperback yeah. <laughs> yeah buy the paperback it's uh it's expensive hardcover but um you know i'm tempted to get the hardcover because it's quickly becoming one of my favorite uh one of my favorite books um and and that that kind of uh that kind of well actually before we before we jump into that um i will actually quickly shout out too thank you for, for anyone who's new to this channel i have conversations with people over a drink of the guest choice uh, and um, and the, the drink sets the tone, and we have deep conversations over deep drinks about religion, philosophy, and human rights. And coming up, we have some really awesome um, panels, including the second slavery panel, which will just be about um, the aftermath and about responding to some of the apologetics that have come out. And if you feel like supporting this channel, you can click the join button. Uh, I really appreciate it, and you become a member. And I've seen a few of you become members, which has been really awesome. We're creating some member content soon, or you can check out the Patreon. Uh, but with that said, get the book, but I want to ask you, Dr. David Morgan, Professor David Morgan, I should say, uh, what are your favorite books? Oh, wow. Uh, you give me your top three, your top three top favorite three. books of all time, or most influential that have impacted I you. I think Marcus Aurelius's Meditations is one of my uh, top favorites. I really like that very much. Uh, uh, I love... Uh, I love Hermann Hesse's novels. Yeah, sort of neo romantic uh, uh, and um, Narcissus and Goldman. Uh, he, he was a Swiss writer around the turn of the 20th century. Really interesting guy and very interested in, in religion. I think he was the son of a uh, Protestant, Swiss Protestant missionary. Um, what's his name, sorry? Hesse, H-E-S-S-E. -S -S -E. It's the German. I mean, he's referred to as Hess in, in English, but yeah. Hesse. Hermann Hesse, Hermann Hesse, huh. um, really wonderful, just beautiful. And if you read German, his, his German is so lyrical and beautiful. And uh, but there are great wow. English translations. Uh, I think uh, uh, coming back to the more intellectual side, stuff that's just really interesting to read. Uh, I love uh, I love reading Sigmund Freud's stuff i think he's such a wonderful writer he's you know, crazy ideas but just really fascinating what do you, what do you think about jung well it's a little wacky uh, honestly, <laughs> but, uh you know <laughs> i've got it so i got given a like one-to-one -one replica of the red book which he obviously was um, yeah i have no idea like, like i don't know i've never read it you know i'm not yeah. gonna read the big copy because it's like it's got the german or the whatever language it was in and and all the imagery and stuff it's a beautiful book but yeah. every time I go to try and even begin to understand what I'm about to read, I have no idea where to start. Like, yeah. Yeah. was this an episode of psychosis? Is this profound, you know, teach? Like, what is this that I'm reading? And it's, um, but I will get to it one day, but I, it just, yeah. he's fascinating. I mean, uh, he's, he reminds me of, uh, Paracelsus and, uh, you know, Swedenborg and all these interesting hermetic, alchemical, mystical thinkers, Jakob Burma. Um, 
you know, but it's all the night in which all cows are black. I, I just, just, doesn't <laughs> <do it> for <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he's a little too wacky, but cause yeah. he, cause he had issues with Freud, right? Is it Freud that he had issues? Well, he with? broke with Freud. Yeah. Over. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Beef. 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 Yeah. But he started um, as a psychoanalyst. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So you got Freud, you got, uh, Hessen, uh, Herman. Uh, uh, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, gosh. Uh, who else? I. Uh, What's uh, your favorite novel? Well, you know, I find it very hard to read novels now. I used to read them mm -hmm. all the time when I was a graduate student. I loved it. Isn't that interesting? I, I just find it very hard to sit down and read novels now. I think. Yeah. Probably the most beautiful, riveting novel I ever read was uh, Grapes of Wrath. Uh, ah, I've never read I, I bought a copy of it a, a couple years ago because I wanted to go back and read Steinbeck again. He, he's just a fantastic writer. I really love that novel. Um, okay. And, uh, oh, gosh, I'm going to think of him as soon as we go on to the next. <laughs> That's okay. And uh, we can. I will circle. Back, yeah, and we are <laughs> drinking whiskey, so it is uh, it's totally okay to go off topic. We've had some episodes that, in fact, that episode with Dr. Kip Davis by the end of it, it was like I think it was like three hours long, and by the end, we were just having we spent 45 minutes talking about metal bands. So, like, by the end of it, we were just both like, oh, we're drinking, we we're drinking straight rye. So, it was, um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was very, have you, you should try uh, a whiskey sour with rye. That's uh, I mean, I usually ah. urban butter, well, rye. This, good rye. Is this really... is this is rye, I think. Oh, you're using rye. Well, that's great. And yeah. did you use lemon? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lemon, well, I yeah. lemon's better. I used to drink just lime, but I and then uh, a really good uh, de I like demerara sugar. I, I I make a syrup from granular demerara, it's excellent, yeah, really good sugar. Well, I'm I'm definitely I was out there like a chemistry set. I'm like I'm like mixing things together. I didn't I'm like I'm, like, I'm trying to work it all out, and the kitchen's a mess. But I need to get the proper proper uh, like shakers and everything like that. <laughs> but um, we have a question from the audience. Uh, has Professor David Morgan read Born Believers: The Science of Children's Religious Beliefs by Justin L. Barrett? I know Justin Barrett's work, uh, the neuroscience stuff. I've not seen this one. <laughs> uh, I haven't read it. Um, uh, but you know, he's, he's got some really interesting ideas. I, uh, uh, we had him at Duke speak several years ago and, uh, I, I just found it, you know, his, his work, uh, helpful, particularly, um, you know, in terms of thinking about, uh, the human capacity to overinterpret, to overdetermine, you know, this uh, notion of a hyper, hyper, uh, detective agent, uh, uh, device you know this way that we um we uh i mean our neurology seems inclined to do this to nominate something as being powerfully important and in, in another book I, I recently wrote i talked about images in this way as kind of as focal objects we what they are is uh like the human face they're the inter the means of connecting with an unseen network and mm. that's a power. They're a node in that network, a particularly important node. They're the access to it. Like the human face is the access to all the networks that comprise our body, uh, our being, you might say. Um, and uh, images are like faces in that sense. You know, we, we, we really gravitate toward them. Uh, doesn't have to be uh, that, though. I mean, I think certain kinds of sound uh, do that, too. They connect us. Sound is particularly important in connecting us to old memories. 
and it's it's, very powerful at that. Uh, so is I think taste, uh, the sense of taste, uh, and and it's just amazing sometimes when you uh, eat something. Uh, and it brings you back. With, what comes with yeah. it? Well, just it's like this. It's like pulling up a a plant with just this this intense network of roots. You realize that what you see is just the tip. Uh, mm. And that's the way it is with a human face, or that is the way it is with an image. We interface mm. with images because there's so much history, so much presence there uh, that uh, is uh, figured by that image and uh, yeah. statues, whatever you know you're talking about. The, there's that scripture, the eyes are the window to the soul. And oh. um, you can tell the whiskey's taking effect because I typed in... <laughs> The soul is in the eyes on Google to try and find the reference. Um, but <laughs> so, so the soul is in the eyes. I think it's more poetic to say the, 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 um, yeah. already. The, um, the, the eyes are a window to the soul. So, yeah, but even then, you know, like that's even the, in the ancients, that that's how, that's how they kind of uh, saw things. And um, yeah, the, it's, uh, it's funny that you talk about the, and, and you talk about the, the smell and the touch and the taste of things because uh, you know, I'm a big uh, connoisseur of scotch. I love scotch. I, I'll drink it all the time. Um, drink it too much sometimes. I have to give myself breaks. Um, we do sober weeks sometimes or sober month on deep drinks uh, sometimes. But um, but one of the things that I, I do with, with whiskey and what I find so interesting is you kind of, I've heard someone say you're kind of drinking artwork with whiskey or, or with, with any like alcohol someone you know it's taken 19 years for some of these these drinks to get their characteristics from the wood and the location and mm-hmm. i had uh my my uh my wife's boss come come around and he's like uh, him and his wife came around and i said look i'm gonna do a whiskey tasting and i had all these whiskeys out and none of them but no one liked whiskey my wife likes it now because i've talked to her and i said we're gonna we're gonna do it i'm gonna i'm gonna get you on the path to to at least appreciating it and i had like diagrams i spent all day like doing like making maps and like we we're, were drinking from this region in scotland and and um and what was super interesting is uh the the father um not the the um the amy's boss the man he he found the whiskey he liked by the end of it he's like i like this whiskey i took a photo of it he's going home with it yeah uh the lady didn't like the wife didn't like any whiskeys but she found which direction she would go if she did kind of like what palette she would have kind of like but something really interesting happened in that she took a sip of uh lagavulin 16 which is a, oh, is a smoky whiskey oh it's a yeah. love it and um and she took a sip of that and immediately she was brought back to living in south africa as a little girl and going into her father's cigar room where all the men would sit around and smoke yeah. uh, uh cigars and it yeah. brought her back to that moment and although yeah. she didn't necessarily like the taste it's quite harsh it brought her back to that moment that uh you know that that they had and, and you've heard other people say when they uh when they drink drink a bit of whiskey they all of a sudden they can taste uh sunscreen and mm-hmm. the reason is because oh, beach. it's got notes beach has got notes of coconut which then sparks their memory it's like there's a chemical reaction happening in your mouth when it hits yeah. the saliva and then that's changing and and it's it's interesting how um uh that kind of happens um well that's uh that's part of uh i think it's the third chapter i look at um you know foods and psychoactive substances and things that we that humans ingest that alters consciousness i mean they these are external agents that we take into our bodies to modify how we think how we feel how we perceive and you know that may not be so much a part of christianity but 
it's a part of a lot of religions and has been. Uh, I mean, people working on the Upper Paleolithic are like Davis Lewis Williams argue that, uh, you know, trance induced by uh, a variety of means, uh, fasting and, and but also yeah. of psychoactive substances. This is critical to the emergence of the modern mind, you know. Uh, so, you know, that was religion. Yeah, that was a mm -hmm. highly shamanistic uh, religion of uh, modifying consciousness artificially in order to enhance perceptions and undertake vision uh, quests and that sort of thing. Mm. We have a couple of super chats. Thank you, Nuria Khan, for sending a super sticker. You are the best. Um, she's she's fantastic. She she's uh, studying to be uh, you know a lawyer at the moment, but she it was is a um, uh, a Muslim who who left her religion after you know investigating and stuff. But um, and now she does a lot of human rights and women advocacy for you know uh, uh, the ladies in Iran and things like that. And um, the right. the amount of the amount of stuff that she, the amount of attacks that she gets she gets online is um, uh, is incredible I, I put one video of her up on my channel and every we, there was one stage where every two hours i was getting a new abusive message from someone because they didn't like her concept but thank you so much uh holy humanist uh, nuria i really appreciated that dr cheryl asked a really good thank you so much for the super chat uh dr cheryl you said with over 4,000 religions in the world, what do you think are some psychological characteristics that lead someone to want to be a part of a particular religion? Hmm. <sighs> Gosh, I mean, I think most people seem to get their religions uh, early in life. And it's very much about being part of a clan or a unit, a family unit or an extended family. Um, this is changing in our own time, of course, with mobility and, and uh, education and um, brand loyalty to whatever mom and dad's religion is, is just really nosediving. And most mm -hmm. religions, most established religions like Christianity uh, are either just holding their own or declining. Um, mm. and, and, and this demographic reason why moving away the the, the erosion of traditional relationships, uh, arrangements like nuclear family, et cetera. All of that, you know, has uh, an impact on religions. And that suggests to us that, you know, one of the things traditionally religions have done is to reaffirm existing structures of authority and power and, and relationships. And, uh, you know, the, the psychological characteristics can push one out or push one back. You know, uh, some people get a more conservative religion because they feel like they're not in control of their lives. And it's this fear, you know, this desire to have more control, more structure, uh, the, and the security and sense of comfort that that provides other people uh, and lots of them. Uh, and this is certainly on the rise, uh, in the U S um, are ready just to jettison, affiliations in the interest of discovery and exploration, entering, entering social relationships and social castes that their parents weren't part of. They go mm. to get educated, they move away, they create new networks of friends and associates, and they need a religion that can help them in that new deployment of self. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so it's a different kind of, I mean, I, in both cases though, it's, 
it's this human quest for some sense of structure. You know, we, we, being a radical free agent works for a while as a as rebellious <laughs> late adolescent, but in the longer run, we want something, you know, we want to be around the people we feel are, are like us and, and we, and, and sharing some spiritual or religious dimensions with them is one way of, you know, maintaining a connection. Hmm. You, you mentioned that it's, you know, that, that the society kind of like they, they, the, that religiosity kind of, kind of pulls forward the, the culture uh, and the traditions. Do you think that's needed? Because there's, I'm, I'm quite progressive myself in my, my thinking. And, uh, and I, I often wonder if, if it's part of that, if part of what keeps society together is the fact that there are progressives and there are conservatives constantly fighting the extreme left are pulling one way, the extreme right are pulling one way. And then hopefully things get better and better as we kind of move mm, like in direction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you yeah. think, what, what kind of person you, do you think that the, these are good things to, to bring forward some of these traditions? Um, or, or do you think they should be brought forward, but just not dogmatically? Do you think they should be appreciated in a new light? Like, um, what are your thoughts around that? Well, I, I just, I, 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 I want to probably sound naive. I just think uh, a degree of honesty uh, is more important than anything. And when people, people ought to feel a little uneasy when their God fits squarely in their back pocket you know um, <laughs> and, and he ends up believe, agreeing with everything they think you know this is a real problem uh, because mm. that suggests that that god is is just a uh, just bullshit you know it's it's a way of <laughs> yeah normalizing what you you know your your biases and and i i think that applies to the left and the right equally. oh yeah yeah you know, yeah Irving, when you know jesus ends up looking like some right-wing nut or some <laughs> left-wing kook. I mean, the, the, I yeah. don't believe you're one of them. Uh, yeah. I don't know who Jesus was and what he, you know, was all about. But I mean, uh, I, seeing Buddha or Jesus or Moses or whoever appropriated for one's uh, uh, political uh, program is—I don't know. It's, it always—I just really—I'm uh, deeply skeptical. <laughs> Yeah. So you've got, you've got blue haired Jesus, blue haired feminist Jesus. And then you've got like tattoos, trucker, uh, you know, <laughs> trucker yeah. Clothes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, got a gun in his back, got his, you know, his, uh, his assault rifle in his back. There's, um, so, uh, you mentioned in your book too, about, um, symbols and things. And, and I do want to circle back to the imagery as well, but, and maybe we can tie them together. Mm -hmm. Um, I find it interesting that side note i find it interesting that jesus actually spoke a lot in imagery he used parables he said the 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 sower of the field the you know the thief in the night like he, he uses imagery to kind of get his message across and in ministry college when i when i completed ministry college they they would say that the reason jesus did that was because parables work so well in 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 people's minds to remember the the overall message and it can be adapted to many things but you say in your book uh we do not see things um, regarding the material um materiality mattering you say, we do not see things in uh, themselves as if some pure or universal state. We see them as they matter to us, um, as our ideas and preferences, cultural dispositions, tastes and interests, interests condition them. And we commonly ignore what we have no interest in seeing. And yet uh, things are, um, are also there separate from us. Not to be sure, uh, not to be sure, identical to what we think or imagine them to be. 
but we do not uh, but we do not in most cases simply invent them uh, with our words or ideas. Things have properties that impinge on us, that resist us, push back, even threaten or harm us. This is another way of saying that their materiality matters. And we should have got you to read that because my dyslexia was playing a lot for a little <laughs> bit there. But but yeah, materiality matters of these symbols and things. And, and uh... this, I think, actually, that passage would be my answer, a better answer that I gave, I think, to your previous question, I think, uh, in the sense that when you read uh, people like Buddha or Jesus or whomever, their otherness needs to be preserved. They're not your pal. They're not, he's not one of us. He's weird and other, and that needs to be uh, part of your engagement with him. It's, 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 it, because I think that's more profoundly ethical you know, when we meet people, we we don't have the right to sort of offload our expectations on them and say, oh, yeah, here's what you are. Uh, we need to open up and let that other person be who that person is and not try to tell them. And mm -hmm. I think the same thing with uh, studying religious figures. You know, they they come from radically different times than we do with, comp with speaking languages that are dead, maybe and gone and uh, with histories that we'll never even learn. Most of, I mean, it's, a lot of people don't even know that Jesus ever existed. It's just, it's just, it's he's shrouded in mystery that we cannot dispel. And that means we should just practice extreme caution in saying what he means. And I know that, you know, uh, liberal progressives will take uh, issue with that because they want the Jesus to, to champion their politics. But Wow, I think that's why I think honesty is 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 a better way of and and just a sort of sober assessment of them, and uh, take what you need, uh, but don't try to uh, stick them in your back pocket. Yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah I I totally in agreement with you there, and I don't know if that comes through in your book at all, but I but I definitely felt like that I, that's how I kind of felt when I left your book. I don't know if they, you're, you blatantly say it out right there though. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's definitely. And it's, it, 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 uh, what we're talking about, I think, uh, is what is powerful for people about things, you know, um, because they, uh, they have a certain recalcitrance, they, a certain resistance, you know, they push back, they're made of, uh, 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 they have their own fabrication, their own histories, and we just have to encounter them with a certain degree of respect and try to understand what's going on here. And uh, and I, I think that's how we keep religion out of our heads and in the real world. You know what I'm mm. saying? Uh, because uh, it's not just my, my my imagination of what it is. It's It has a reality that we need to... Uh, really honestly engage and uh, uh, with a certain degree of, I guess, uh, humbleness. Mm. Well, if you could, uh, I, we're gonna, we'll move on to the question and answers section of the interview, but I, I do want to um, ask you, for those who are interested in buying your book, if you could summarize it, I mean, it's summarized here, but if you could summarize it in, in um, some words that uh, from the author who has had a little bit of whiskey sour, what would you say about uh, this book? What would you say? Who is this book for? 
Well, uh, it, the book came to my mind uh, as a prospect when I, I was thinking about the challenge of teaching religious studies uh, from a material perspective. And students love the idea, undergrads and, and graduate students. Uh, uh, but uh, it seemed like every time I was teaching, I had, it was a kind of go back to square one and because writing about things is, they're interested, but they hadn't, no preparation. So I wanted to write a book for undergraduates, for doctoral students, and for my colleagues, and for anybody who's really interested in the conversation about things uh, as a kind of starting place. Um, you know, I, I don't know that it's, you, you tell me uh, what level of reading it is, but I, I, I've had uh, luck with it, a good fortune in, in the classroom. People find it engaging and um, it leads to it's, a lot of interesting conversations. And I really wanted to help people think um, away from this intellectualized religion as a system of beliefs thing to mm. things people do to make sense of life uh, yeah. with images, with objects, with spaces, food, etc. And, yeah. uh, you know, that was my, that's kind of what the book is about. And then it's, it's structured in two parts. The first part is uh, a kind of uh, looking at major theories and ideas. Um, it opens with this reflection on the agency of things, you know, the fact mm. that things do work, they affect us. And we've been talking about that. Um, and then I looked at theories of religion that dematerialize it. And then the third chapter, I can't remember, second chapter, whatever, looks at, uh, uh, you know, the materiality of religion. Mm. The next chapter looks at particular, focuses on particular aspects, food and drugs and uh, religion and politics, religion and the state, you know, in terms of spaces and things and um, religion. You have a whole... You have a whole history on wands. On in, on yeah, that's the next wands. chapter. Then yeah, I'm really <laughs> interested in wands because they they're, they're power objects, and yeah. I wanted to know well how how does that happen? And it's yeah. a fascinating history because it goes way back before Christianity uh, in in the history of Judaism and and also in Europe the history of Celtic religion, the Druids, and and I. I just track it clear up to the present, particularly in the last uh, 150 years with the rise of neo-paganism and Wicca and, mm. and very fascinating, um, you know, evocations <laughs> and inventions of, of uh, pagan religions in the modern era. And uh, wands have sort of achieved a new presence and a new life. And there's just a ton of literature on wands. So yeah. I was really intrigued by them and what they do and how, you know, this fits we'll, in material understanding. We'll have to make a video together of explaining the, what you've discovered about ones, because I think I think it's fascinating. Um, there's, uh, I, yeah, and I think that you asked the question, you know, is this book easy to read? So I'm I'm dyslexic. I've really struggled to read books. In fact, what I do, um, I love reading so much, but I um, struggle with it. So I usually listen to audio versions of a book. In fact, I use, sometimes use text-to-speech software. So I'll get a PDF and I'll throw it in text-to-speech and I'll listen to that. And then I'll, I'll, I'll bookmark parts that were interesting to me. And then I'll get the physical version and I'll put the stickers in there. But with this one, I actually read this from, from start to finish. So that's a testament to how much it grabbed me, yeah. uh, but also how easy it was to read. For me, it was right on the fringes of, and I'm not super intelligent, but it was right on the um, fringes of like, it was, it was, uh, it wasn't boring, like in that 
it was challenging me a lot in my um into uh, in my intellect but it was kind of doing it in a way that was you have to think when you're reading it you can't just it's not like just reading lord of the rings or something where you just kind of go with the story you think but it's not too hard that you're pulling up references and looking at you know it's so i i, I think it's really well balanced it's not no. too easy not too um hard i think you should do if you've got an audio version ever coming out i would i would love that um mm. as well do you oh, have a, especially especially because your voice is i think you've got a good voice for reading i think you'd be good for it <laughs> that would um, be fun yeah do, do you have any um new books coming out or that you're working on i'm working on a book now called uh, uh the working title is the art of seeing things and the subtitle is the visual culture of revelation I'm really interested in the role that imaging plays in Revelation. I'm not talking just about the book and the Bible, but I mean Revelation like, in a broad sense. Yeah, I even yeah. look at, in part of it, I look at scientific discoveries and how they are often expressed uh, and described by scientists in, in sort of mysterious, erratic language of revelation, uh, yeah. especially with the Webb uh, telescope. It's really fascinating to hear scientists talk about what they're learning and uh, about the size. I mean, it's sublime. You know, the, we live in this universe. Yeah. Known universe is 93 billion light years across, which is just, that is just, you know, <laughs> boggling. But I know. Uh, it's it's, it's, a, it's yeah. really incredible. I mean, if, you know, for me, it's it's probably the, the religion you know i it's just it's just phenomenal <laughs> i've got the uh i've got the, the you talk about the hubble deep field image is that yeah. the yeah well, that's the older so, one yeah but that i love that deep field image yeah it's astonishing yeah yeah that's the that that was that was quite old so just to just to give everyone i'm just going to show it because i think it's i got i got a picture of it on my wall but um Oh my gosh, let me just get the one that with the up. density of galaxies. Uh, that's the deep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me just quickly just bring it up. So, so this is uh, this is the Hubble Deep Field. Um, yeah. And so what they did with this is they pointed their telescopes to a part in the night sky that was that was dark. Usually, back then they always pointed to you know celestial objects that they knew, but this one they pointed to a to a specific spot in the sky that was probably the most dark but also as the satellite went around earth it needed to be able to do like a long exposure so just keep the shutter open essentially as it went around and i don't know if it was it was days or weeks that it was just yeah. take, capturing this image getting getting light that was so old what you're seeing here besides a few of these um so this uh this this shiny one here like this one with the two lines that's a star so that's a very dim close star but everything else you see here <laughs> is a galaxy uh not a galaxy uh yeah a galaxy. galaxy um and some of these like um these lights are at the edge of the known universe at the time so 13.8 billion light years away they, they, that light's been traveling for 13.8 billion years and what's wild about this is each one of these galaxies has hundreds of billions of stars and each one of those stars i mean i think if you if you uh if you look at our solar system i think the average amount of planets uh, around the solar system or celestial bodies like 19 or something include because because like you've got like jupiter and it's got so many moons and things like that but you've got each one of these stars are hundreds of billions of stars and each one of these little specks of light even the tiny little ones uh is um you know got planets around it and then you think wow that's like incredible you got literally like for, for, in our fastest spaceships we couldn't cross one of these galaxies in 
many I, I'm not gonna I'm gonna start making up numbers, but a long time. This is this is far. But when you when you consider all this, you're like, wow, there's hundreds and hundreds of billions of planets and, and stars in these in each one of these little dots. And you think that must be like the whole night sky. That is the size of a pinprick if you hold it at arm's length. That's that's the, the part of the sky that you're seeing there. And I know what you mean when you say that if there was a religion, this this would be part of my religion. I'm so filled with awe and amazement and wonder at the size of this universe. It's just it it boggles the mind. It's mm -hmm. it's just it's incredible. Um, so now I'm off my soapbox uh, preaching my religion. I'll ask you a few questions. Mm -hmm. So guys, if you've got any um, questions, um, you can feel free to ask them. If you definitely want your question answered, you can super chat them. But I have a few questions that I always ask to always uh, tend to ask people. Um, so the first the first question I like to ask people is uh, so do you, would you mind talking about your belief system at the moment? Like, have you, have you, has your the belief system developed throughout the years? Are you religious? Are you not religious? Are you happy to kind of mention that or? I'm not religious. Uh, I uh, grew up in a religious home, like a lot of people, but it uh, didn't <laughs> stick. I yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, I find religion so uh, fascinating uh, because yeah. uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's culture, you know, for me, mm. and that means it's history. And that means that it's uh, how people, a lot of people, not everyone, of course, um, you know, make sense of things. And uh, um, there's just, and then, and, and of course, I'm, as an art historian, uh, I'm, I'm deeply interested in the role that imaging plays in uh, religions. So uh, I've, you know, spent a good deal of my time writing about that. Mm. Well, so my question is, um, regarding your belief, and, uh, and I ask most people this, but what, if anything, would change your mind? So could you, could, you, could you find something that would convince you that there is something more to it than psychological or material or physical or cultural? I don't think so. I, uh, I, last year I was, uh, or earlier this year, I was... <clears throat> in the hospital uh, with a intestinal thing. And it was really serious. I spent six days there. Mm. And it wasn't until after I realized, you know, I was really sick. And uh, I got, it came to, it never even occurred to me to pray or it, religion just doesn't, it just doesn't play a light, uh, a role in my uh experience mm. uh not afraid of death i think you know it's it's so basic it's so authentic to a human existence death, mm. uh we need to live toward it deliberately and um it's the last thing we do you know in that sense uh, mm. uh and uh so uh i don't i I mean, if aliens landed on the planet tomorrow, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a religious event for me. It would be yeah. a really bizarre, natural event. I mean, okay, there's these things. Well, now, now, what do we do? You know, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's, yeah. I, so if like a, if like the rapture came, like the um, the what's that movie that was really popular? Uh, Left yeah, Behind. Yeah. The Left Behind rapture happened. Would you be like, oh, maybe there is something to to this? Or would you be like, what's going on? Like, we, I mean, it's a, it's a wild hypothetical, but yeah. <laughs> I just uh, I think you know, 
the natural world is so phenomenally interesting <laughs> and full of wonder. I mean, for me, yeah. you know, like but these, I, I love, you know, astrophysics and stuff like that. I just think that's so phenomenal. The world is, the universe is weird. I mean, it's just so radically weird and all this uh, quantum mechanic stuff and subatomic things. I mean, I know. It, it's, uh, it's enough, you know, I don't want. <laughs> I read <laughs> I this tiny book. It was a tiny, tiny, tiny book. It was like, it was like a, on a very popular level on quantum mechanics. And about halfway through, I just stopped giving, I just stopped trying to understand it and just took everything they were saying as like, okay, like you say, if you say so, like, and just, just treating it like almost like a fantasy novel where it's like, this is the way it works. And like, I just had to try because I had no ability to kind of comprehend the quantum mechanics. I was like, all right, all right. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, <laughs> some of it seems so crazy, wild. but, uh, but yeah. it's fascinating. And uh, I don't know the weird and human beings are, are strange things. They're really, they, I, mm. I, I just never get tired of studying uh, and writing about uh, people and, it's it's just uh, utterly fascinating. So I I I love what I do, and uh, uh, very very privileged to have the opportunity to do it. If you could share a meal with any individual, living or dead, who would that be? And let's pretend you can speak the language if you choose, like some mm. Latin philosopher or something. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know. I don't, not into biography and all that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You wouldn't, you wouldn't talk to um, Plato and tell him that he's being an egomaniac with his. Um... <laughs> I, 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 I just, uh, I can't even imagine what that would be like because uh, everything we know is. I, 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 I don't think in those terms because. Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Not. I'm not really. Uh, I don't think there's anybody I'd like to talk to. You know, any. I don't have a hero. You know, I don't have. I just yeah. don't think those terms. Uh, impressed by smart people and creative people. I uh, love art and and. Uh, but uh, honestly, I don't. I blank. Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite artist? That's good. Probably Cezanne. Uh, I, I really like his work a lot. Uh, but I like a lot of people. Zahn. Um, uh, Paul Cezanne, yeah. uh, oh, French artist, um, uh, part of the Impressionist group, and then later beyond that. Um, ah. Uh, did a landscape. Mostly, he spent most of his time in the south of France. Uh, yeah, there you go, Cezanne. Oh, yeah. Really interesting yeah. painter. Um, in terms of the 20th century, I mean, I have a lot of painters I like. I think the California painter Richard Diebenkorn is one of my my favorites. Uh, really like abstract or figurative art like that. And uh, oh, there's so much. I, I love to go to museums and galleries. And I'm I'm I must tell you I'm with respect to the previous question. I'm far more interested in the art than I am the artist. I I just <laughs> I'm just not interested. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really. Uh, I just don't care, frankly. Uh, the artists don't <laughs> interest me. I, I love the work. Uh, yeah, Pinkhorn's yeah, stuff is just fantastic. I mean, he looks like he'd be a fairly boring guy to talk to, but I think his work is what is magnificent, you know. Wow. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's 
wonderful. Yeah. Susan Rothenberg um, is another painter I really like. Uh, American painter, uh, really phenomenal. One of my favorites uh, is Giorgio Morandi, an Italian uh, 20th century painter, did still lifes. Uh, he's really great. Yeah, Rothenberg is fantastic. She's yeah. he's really a wonderful painter. Fantastic. Oh wow, it's very. Um, I, I'm starting to get an idea of your of the style you like. What's what's the the last one you mentioned? Sorry, Giorgio the... Morandi, M O R I N D. Just the way I'm spelling some of these, and Google is helping me. Um, no, good. Giorgio, Giorgio, M O R A N D I, I think. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I'm not. I'm not, uh, not doing well at finding. Oh, yeah, found it. Yeah. Yeah. He's really nice. Simple uh, uh, still lives. He just yeah. did dozens, and I saw a great retrospective at the Tate Modern. Uh, Few years ago it's just amazing stuff well i'm definitely going to um read grapes of wrath that's definitely on my list because um you say it's a interesting novel Beautiful. Uh, fantastic piece of work yeah well my uh one of my favorite novels is uh kafka on uh not kafka on the shore sorry same author though norwegian wood um by uh, uh hiroki murakami he's a he's a japanese author it was his first kind of novel it's like about teen angst and and goes into depression and suicide and sex and and all that stuff but it's um the way he writes is like normally i wouldn't be interested in all that stuff and whatever but the way he writes is so profound he, he's, he's like he's like 80 years old he gets up at four in the morning he writes for four hours then he goes for a 12k run then he comes back and writes for another four hours and that's what he does every single day he mm -hmm. is just obsessed with writing um it's uh and, and, and he's just he's wacky he's perverted he's like it's, it's 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 really interesting it's really interesting stuff okay so to end um end on the last question and this might this might be uh and then we've got a quote but end on the last question and this might not not land with you because uh you don't seem to work very well in the realm of weird wacky deep drinks hypotheticals but i'll ask this what is the most plausibly true religion that you don't believe in oh buddhism a question ah okay Many people say Buddhism. Why yeah. Buddhism? Well, I have a what's called a sort of Western Dharma model, which is that Buddha was not a god. He was <laughs> a psychologist or philosopher or whatever. And, you know, he's just spent a lot of time suffering through uh, wrong-headed quests. And uh, over time, but not by virtue of cerebral power, but by meditation and experience uh i think saw through uh you know the emptiness of human vanity and and craving and foolishness and uh in my buddha death is not he nibbana extinction means death it means you, yeah. you, you leave this shit behind you know <laughs> and uh to me uh the, he he achieved that that is uh a good death that is the meaning uh for me for life you know working carefully assiduously over the course of one's life to to create uh something and then to realize that it's perfectly natural at the end to die uh yeah. and to do so honestly and, and do so do so in this kind of position lying on your side yeah, That's, yeah. <laughs> uh yeah after I, he got turned into something else like a lot of religious <laughs> founders do but uh that deep, there's a story yeah isn't there a story about him like leaving his mother's side when he was born 
standing up as a baby and saying, I like in confessing, he is the Buddha. It's like, that's, yeah. you know, and it's like, obviously that's a later <laughs> adaptation, yeah. but no, it's not the, the Buddha I find most interesting. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. There again, I'm not a Buddhist. I, I just find, you know, some of the ideas and practices, uh, sitting meditation, for instance, just, you know, compelling. Uh, mm. But, uh, mm. Yeah. yeah. So, so do I actually, I, um, I really, uh, I've read, uh, the Dhammapada, um, and it was a very, yeah, it was a very it's kind beautiful. of, um, it was it. a Westernized version. Like it was in, in English and it was like really easy to digest, but yeah, some, some great stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, as well. I really love the Bhagavad Gita. If you've ever read that, um, that was, that, yeah, that blew me away as well. Yeah. Yeah. Fan, Not fantasy. Buddhist, but it's, it's good. Yeah. Hindu. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we'll just end with a quote from your book. Uh, and it's indeed religions are embodied material processes that shape societies, prompt behavior, affect interaction with the physical world and organize relations among human beings. Doing all of this in the way that people interact with bodies, images, objects, places, clothing, food and pharmacology. And I think that's just a perfect way to kind of wrap up this interview. Guys, go check out the book. If Links in the description as always. 